Well, good morning. It's um, a delight to be able to see you here. And uh, I hope that you will uh, enjoy this uh, next hour we have together as much as you would have enjoyed what's happened already so far. Um, I'm having a slight crisis here because um, they gave instructions that I should speak in the pulpit on the left. And so, of course, as we turned into the chapel, the first question was, which form of left? Does that mean left as I'm looking to you or left as we came in? Um, so I may or may not get told off for being in the right place. We've assumed it's left as we come in. At least this microphone is on. So we're working on that basis. The question we have today is perhaps um, uh, the one that has surprised me the most, I would say, in the last two to three years um, uh, that I've come across uh, in terms of my travel across um, around the world. I, I, I have, I suppose, the, the joy but also the tiredness of maybe speaking in anything from 30 to 50 different countries a year. And about three, four years ago, something happened in this country um, which got me thinking quite hard. And, and it must be true what I read, because I read it in the Times. Um, and therefore, obviously, it can't be questioned. Um, but it told the, the story of a woman who was in a student debate. And she was being criticized in her student debating chamber for failing to respond to a criticism that she had received that had been published in the local press. And as in the debating chamber, she was being critiqued herself for failing to respond to the critique leveled against her. She raised her hand in order to get the chairperson's attention to point out the fact that actually she had written privately to the person who'd attacked her, not responded publicly, and was hoping to have a private meeting rather than publishing a public response. As soon as she raised her hand, however, this triggered an emergency debate in the debating chamber about whether she should be expelled or not because the debating chamber a few weeks earlier had passed a motion through the NUS banning any form of hand gesture that denoted disagreement. And by raising her hand, it was clear that she was denoting some form of disagreement and therefore had violated the safe space policy that they had agreed to introduce into the chamber a few months beforehand. And so now they had to abandon the debate about censoring her for failing to public to now decide whether she'd turned the debating chamber itself into a fundamentally unsafe space. Now, I was giving this illustration to a group of leaders, political and business leaders from across Asia, all the way from China, down right across to New Zealand, probably about 20 different countries in the room, as a Western illustration and offered a comment onto why I thought, what I thought was perhaps going on. And to my amazement, at the end of that meeting, was invited to speak in every single one of those countries, either to political leadership or senior business leadership, because they felt they were facing exactly the same issue. And what I had begun to see as a potentially Western problem, I began to increasingly realize was perhaps something of more of a global one. Now, I was already aware that this question that had been running through in my mind I'd already seen played out for a long time historically in the Middle East. But also very much to my surprise, a few months after that, sitting down with a businessman who works in Sudan and South Sudan and had just taken some of our former uh, prime ministers from this country and a few former presidents from the United States, to talk to the cabinets of both of those two war-torn countries. We agreed to have a breakfast for half an hour, and three and a half hours later, he was saying, you have to come with me. I would like you to spend time with both of, these, both of the political leaderships in both of these countries to share with them what you just shared with me. This is the narrative which is driving everything which is happening in that part of Africa. So when we move into the Q&A, I may not be able to adequately describe to you why this has become such a global phenomenon. But 
it is something which does seem somehow to have transcended the normal cultural differences that we actually see. And I'm increasingly concerned is possibly the single dominant narrative which almost all global politics and business is being run right now. There is, of course, the other wonderful illustration, um, although now much debated and analysed, about what happened to Jermaine Greer a couple of years ago when, using words I will not repeat, she made various comments and a motion was started to try to have her no platform by the NUS for speaking at the University of Cardiff in the light of the comments that she made. Peter Tatchell famously ran to her defence and said that students at Cardiff University shouldn't ban Jermaine Greer from speaking. She was a well-known British academic uh, feminist, even though she'd made these um, comments about transgender rights, and he said they should allow her to speak. And of course, I remember feeling actually quite disheartened when I saw in the press someone suggest that maybe Peter Tatchell was homophobic and transphobic for what he had said, because he had dared to disagree with the person who had passed the motion. So a motion was actually started by, again, the student body to have him no platform and prevented from having him from having speaking at universities. At this point, someone who you may have heard of called Professor Richard Dawkins he held a BBC press conference and using a lot of the four-letter words that Jermaine Greer used that I'm prohibited really from using in this pulpit, he made it clear what he thought about the intellectual capacity of a form of students who could evaluate the evidence of Peter Tatchell's life and conclu conclude that he was homophobic. And he basically said that people of such intellectual capacity should never be allowed into university in the first place. Um, I don't know if any of you ever watched Blackadder, but there's that famous line when he turns to Baldrick and says, Baldrick, you have the intellectual capacity more commonly associated with forms of pond life which are invisible to the naked eye. That was the gist, I think, of what Richard was trying to say. So then, of course, now a motion was started to have Richard Dawkins no platform from speaking at British universities for fear of spreading hate speech on campus. And at this point, uh, Professor Brian Cox, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, he then held his own press conference in which he said trying to ban Richard Dawkins from speaking at British universities did seem a little bit extreme. He was a relatively well-known academic and surely should be allowed to speak at British universities. The only reasons why I'm starting with what I'm about to share with you is that as Christians, what I'm about to share with you we very often assume is something which is directed against us. And that's a very dangerous thing because otherwise we're going to bow bend into the same mentality that I'm about to share with you, which I think is utterly destructive. We're witnessing a new form of anger which is shutting down the forms of debate right across the world, and it's a very dangerous place to go. And what I'm going to try and do, if I can, is try to explain to you what I think is going on in our culture, share a few words from the book of Jonah, which may seem a strange place to go. But I want to start, um, uh, I want to delve into that book of Jonah, because Jonah is a unique prophet in the Old Testament. Unlike all the other prophets, um, he is very upset with God. There's no, there's no shortage of people in the Old Testament or in the New Testament who want to run away from God. But Jonah runs away from God not because he's done something, feels he's done something wrong. So Adam and Eve run away from God and hide in the garden because they feel they've done something wrong. Jonah runs away from God and tries to hide because Jonah thinks God has done something wrong. Jonah has a sense of moral outrage at the failure of God's moral leadership in fundamental justice issues as he sees it, and that's what we'll come back to. And then I'll end with just a few personal words of challenge, and then I'll try and open this up for any form of contribution or question that anyone in this room would like to make. We actually heard a little bit this morning from Tim Keller about honor cultures. And traditionally, when sociologists have analyzed culture, we tend to use one of two main paradigms. One is the honor paradigm. Now, what I want to use, I want to talk about this in terms of how we respond 
to failure and how we respond to critique. So I'm not going to expound it in all of its, in all of its technicality. But in honor-based cultures, when someone attacks you, the key thing you're interested in is defending your honor and responding with honor. In other words, you must have an honorable response to whatever dishonorable thing was done to you. Now, whether you have to defend yourself with pistols at dawn, in a sense, because your honor's been attacked, or whether you're going to stand up and defend yourself within a debating chamber, or before the press, or before your colleagues, or whatever it is, either way, you are required to actually stand up and to respond with honor. You have, your honor's been attacked, you now must now defend it. And we have esteem in a culture. We are valued in a culture. Leadership, in particular, is analyzed in terms of honor. Now, this is different to what we contrast with um, what so-called dignity-based cultures. Now, these cultures are fewer, but in dignity-based cultures, the key thing is that when we're attacked, we respond with dignity. So in a dignity-based culture, if someone attacks you, you may not publicly decide to defend your honor. You may very quietly take the debate to a small room, settle the matter there, come out and say to everybody, everything's sorted now, everything's good. And that's seen as a dignified response. You have acted with dignity. And what we look for in our leadership, what we actually value, are people who will respond with that kind of quiet dignity. It's not seen as weakness, it's a form of strength. Now what both honor cultures and dignity cultures have in common is that we don't make third-party appeals for minor disputes. It's not honorable to go crying off to daddy, even if your father's the most powerful person in the land, to sort out your problems. You have to sort them out. That's down to you. And literature, whether it's ancient Chinese literature, European literature, Arabic, African, wherever you go, all have stories of princes who've been spoiled, who go crying off to their father to solve all of their problems. And the stories either end well, the son learns to stand for himself and conduct himself with honor, or they well end well badly in the sense that the prince dies you know, and the other, someone else takes over who has that kind of honor. But either way, you don't go making third-party appeals. And same in a dignity-based culture. In a dignity-based culture, you don't go around boasting about how much pain and suffering you may have. You are expected to respond yourself. You respond out of and out from a different place, and you sort out the problems. However, we're now increasingly living in what people have started to debate and use the term victim culture, a term I'm not particularly happy with, but let's just stick with it. In a victim culture, things are different. In victimized cultures, we have standing, we have status, not because we conduct ourselves with honor or we conduct ourselves with dignity, but because we've been victimized. That's what gives us our status. And in a victim culture, everything becomes very narcissistic. I don't like living in a narcissistic culture. People don't think about me enough anymore as they're always thinking about themselves. <laughs> but in victim-based cultures, all of a sudden, I begin to think that the rules which apply to everyone else shouldn't apply to me because of my special status of what has either currently or historically happened to me. And the greater my victimhood, the more of this special status I carry. Now, because it's entirely <coughs> locked on in itself, the narrative within a victim-based culture very quickly becomes this. Everything I do and say as a victim is only explicable through love. But everything you do, if you ever dare disagree with me, is only ever explicable through hate. In other words, the moment at which you disagree with me as a victim means that you hate me. Why was Peter Tatchell attacked for being homophobic? Because the student who decided to ban Jermaine Greer was gay. 
The narrative is, everything I do is motivated by love. The only explanatory motive for anyone who disagrees with me is hatred. I forbade Jane Greer, Peter Tattle disagrees with me, he must hate me, I'm gay, therefore he must be homophobic. Do you see how the logic works? The trouble is that this then means that it becomes the end of all forms of debate and all form of free society anywhere in the world. And it doesn't just affect Christians, it affects everyone. It's directed against everyone. As someone has said, the only better feeling in the world right now than being right is feeling wrong. The only better feeling in the world right now than being right is feeling wrong. What this means, therefore, is that it, we breed a culture in which it becomes impossible to disagree. All disagreement is equated with hatred. So either you're an oppressed or you're an oppressor, and those are the only two camps you can be in, and you have to decide who goes in, and someone somewhere has to define which of those two groups is ultimately right. Which is why now we form our society into small coalescences of victim groups. Every victim group has its own present or historical grievance. And no one is allowed to speak to my group unless you've had the same grievance as me. If you don't have the same grievance as me, you have no right whatsoever to speak about my issue or my group, because you are all outsiders. It's all about me and our particular group. If you want to join my group, you must advocate my complaint more militantly and more vociferously than I do. And if you're willing to do that in an unqualified member way, you get co-opted now into my little group. Up until the point you decide to disagree with me, at which point you're immediately ejected from the society. Now this causes problems on a huge political scale at a global level. It basically means the temptation, if you're running for office, is to do the political mathematics. You count the number of victim groups in each society, you calculate the number of likely voters in each of those groups, and you decide which complaints you will advocate in a militant and unqualified way in order to make sure that you get co-opted in and they understand you stand with them. And it causes a huge problem. It's why increasingly in this world we see so few statesmen and stateswomen anymore. So few people who we feel somehow can arrive, rise above the tyranny of the immediate and speak to issues in a much bigger and broader way. In the past, statespeople were seen as those who could step into troubled waters and say to one group, what you did, what was done to you was wrong, and it was terrible, and we should do something about it. But that doesn't justify you doing this terrible thing to this group over here. That's also wrong. And they were able to talk both ways at the same time. And it was seen as a statesperson-like type response, something which rose above the tyranny of the immediate and everyone's demands and could actually bring peace into a difficult thing. But what do you do in a culture where all forms of disagreement become equated with hatred? It makes it impossible for anyone to speak this way. This is why even if you go to a country like South Africa today and you mention Nelson Mandela's name at any, almost any university campus, you may well be booed from the platform. Because that's exactly the kind of message that Nelson Mandela gave. But he's no longer now seen as a statesperson. He's now seen as someone who sold out and who betrayed the cause. And now there has to be some kind of violent correction to his total failure of leadership. The amazing thing about this is that the more you look at it, you'll also realize there's a huge generational divide. First time my children ever heard me talk about this, who were all teenagers, their response was every single person in my class, in my year that I know, 100% think victim culture is normal. That's the way all of us think. 
You speak to a room of people largely over the age of 40 and almost 100% of them will think that this victim culture sounds utterly nuts and surely no one apart from a few crazy people in remote corners could possibly embrace it. And so now we also see a huge global generational divide between a large army of world people all across the world for whom this is the very air they breathe and they think that anyone who doesn't think this way has no love of justice whatsoever. And a group of largely older people who are looking at that generation think you've either all contemporarily insane, but at some point you will turn from this madness and you'll come and join us. I don't know if any of you saw the original Superman movie, 1986, Christopher Reeves. If you haven't seen it, you'll notice, well, if you have seen it in particular, you'll notice how much I look like him. But here's the question. Let me ask you, in 1986, what were Superman's weaknesses, apart from kryptonite, where was Superman weak? And the answer is nowhere. Morally, perfect. Rationally, perfect. Physically, perfect. Kind, gentle, understanding. He was perfect. Have any of you seen Man of Steel? The millennial remake of Superman. That movie starts very differently. In Man of Steel, Superman is on a tugboat in the middle of nowhere in a deep fog. He feels cosmically abandoned, cosmically lonely left by his parents, misunderstood, with false expectations, he doesn't know who he is, everyone's looking to him, and he's upset and angry with the world in general because nobody really understands who he is. Even Superman needs a victim narrative to be a hero in today's culture. As a matter of fact, if you watch any of the Marvel superhero movies, of which there are several, as my <laughs> wife will sadly testify, if you watch any of those films, every single superhero today has a victim narrative. They've all been abused, used, discarded, betrayed, hurt, whatever. You cannot have status in today's society unless you can claim some form of historical victimhood. It's the ultimate trump card. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, this is where the story of Jonah becomes very interesting if you're interested in, in a biblical narrative of this. Because Jonah is angry with God. We know Jonah is angry with God because after Jonah forgives everyone in Nineveh, Jonah brings a complaint. It says in verse four, or chapter 4, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong that God had forgiven these people and he became angry. The Hebrew word there is very hard to translate. It means to be so angry you could be physically sick. I don't ever experience that kind of intense anger. It could literally make you ill. So that hit his reaction. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he's angry with God. Why is he so angry? Why is it that in Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. You might think that that opening sentence from God would please Jonah. You see, Jonah is living at the time of the Assyrian Empire. Many ancient historians would argue that the Assyrian Empire was the most evil of all ancient empires that ever existed. Some people would go so far as to say that there has never been any empire today, up until our point in history, that was anywhere near as evil as them. And that's quite a claim when you think of some of the terrible things that we've witnessed, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. <coughs> so Jonah was living at the time of the Assyrian Empire. His own nation is under threat from the Assyrians. They're attacking his people, they're enslaving them, they're taking the land, and he is living in fear that they're going to come and get him. They are doing terrible things, horrible things. And God comes to him and says, Jonah, that great city, its great sin, has risen all the way up to heaven, and I've seen it. And you would think 
Well, I mean, just imagine this. Just take a moment to imagine the person you like the least. Or let's put it even more strongly, you hate the most. The person that simply makes your blood boil and will give you a slight twitch you know, in your face if I even were just to give you their name. And then imagine God were to come to you and say, the great sin of this person has risen up before me and I want you to go and preach about it. What would be your emotional response, honestly? Wouldn't you be happy? We love it. We would love to get divine endorsement. Does that make sense? For God to agree, I think that person's terrible. God thinks that person's terrible. God has come and shown himself to me and said, that person's so terrible, their sin's risen all the way to heaven, and you're to go and speak against it. Many of us would actually emotionally welcome that. But Jonah runs away. And he's angry with God. The reason he's angry with God is he is about, he, well, he gives, he, he tells us in chapter 4 why he ran away and why he's so angry. He says it very clear. He said, God, isn't this when I said when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. Isn't that interesting? Jonah's complaint about the God of the Old Testament is he's too loving, too kind, and too compassionate. So if you've ever heard the complaint that the God of the Old Testament is full of anger and wrath and the God of the New Testament is full of love, you can get rid of that distinction straight away. You can solve that complex theological problem by the complex process known as reading. <laughs> You're going to read about God's love and judgment in both. But why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, he says it here. Jonah says to God, God, you're too kind. You're too gracious. You're too compassionate. You love forgiving people. In other words, Jonah runs away because he doesn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. It's an incredible story. The book of Jonah tells of the largest single revival recorded in Scripture. 140,000 people, 100% of everybody in this great city become a Christian. All I can tell you is if I came and spoke in London for 40 days and 100% of this city became a Christian, every man, woman, and child... I would find a way to tell that story everywhere I went. <laughs> it would not make me feel angry, I don't think. So we have to tap in what is going on in Jonah's heart. Why is he so angry? And the answer is, these people are his enemy. They've hurt him. They've hurt his family. They've hurt his country. And they have done great injustice. There is a genuine failure of justice here. And Jonah sees it. And Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites forgiven. He wants them destroyed. He wants them wiped off the face of the planet. And Jonah is worried if he goes and takes this message of love he has to Nineveh, they're going to repent. And if they repent, God will forgive them. And if God forgives them, he won't destroy them. But if Jonah doesn't go, and he doesn't tell them to repent, then they may not repent, in which case God will destroy them. And Jonah has an added incentive Jonah lived at the same time as Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. Those four prophets were contemporaries with each other, and I'm sure would have made excellent conference speakers, especially if you did all four at the same time. But Hosea has, pro has prophesied something very profound. He makes it clear, God makes it clear through his prophet, through Amos and Hosea, that he's going to use the Assyrian Empire to punish Israel. So Jonah knows something too. If God forgives this city and he doesn't destroy them, then he can use them to 
punish his own country for their lack of repentance. But if they don't repent, God will destroy them. And then he can't use what he's destroyed to punish them, so now they're okay. Jonah is now faced with taking a message of forgiveness to a group of people, and he's terrified about what the consequence could be for him. So when Jonah finally sees, and the message is finally spoken, and the people finally repent, and they are forgiven, Jonah becomes angry, and to him it seems very wrong. There's been a huge failure of justice here. There's been a massive failure of justice. The Assyrians are wrong, they need to be punished, they haven't been punished, they've been forgiven, and justice has failed. Jonah runs away with God, not because he feels he's done something wrong. Jonah runs away from God because he thinks God has done something wrong. God failed to uphold justice. And he's mad. I just um, returned from northern Nigeria where I had um, the life of and simply speaking to some Christians there, but meeting with the Islamic leadership for the particular state where Boko Haram are, are meeting uh, and doing all kinds of things, unspeakable things. And the question I had as I met with the Christians there was, how are you going to respond? It's a very difficult thing, isn't it? How do we respond in the face of when we see what we perceive of something which is awful? People being killed, tortured, simply disappearing, never seen again. How do we respond? So these questions aren't simple. And in the discussion, I look very much hearing, to hearing your answer and solution to all of this so I can take it to the next talk I give somewhere else. <laughs> but let me begin to suggest a basic a response that we need to have starting with our own heart. The amazing thing about the book of Jonah is every year on the Day of Atonement in Israel, this book is read out loud. <coughs> Why would it be the case that the story of this angry prophet would be read out loud every year in the nation on one of its most important days? Because the book doesn't necessarily end well. Does that make sense? God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah says, it is right! As a matter of fact, God asked Jonah the question twice. First time God asked Jonah the question, he's so angry, he says nothing. God says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah says nothing. He goes away and sulks, the plant grows, he has some shade and the plant dies, and then God comes a second time and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And he goes, it is right! And I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. Jonah maintains his anger against God all the way through the book. And God then comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, the same grace I've extended to the Ninevites, I'm extending to you. You want me to be forgiving to you and to your people, but you're angry when I'm forgiving to someone else. But I'm offering you the same possibility for forgiveness. Should I not have compassion on these people? And God here is trying to do something which we actually heard talked about this morning. I have no idea what we shared this morning. God is basically saying, should these lives not be of value to me? Uh, earlier this year, I um, met with one of the um, intellectual thought leaders for um, a group called ISIS, who you may have heard of, and that was a fascinating conversation. Uh, he walked into the room and smiled at all of us and sat down, and his opening question rather took me by surprise. He said, here's my first question for you, because we were, we were told we were going to have a theological discussion. He says, does a life have value when you believe the wrong thing? 
Now, not quite sure what your response would be, but here's my tip when you're talking to someone who's got terrorist inclinations. I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> Seems the safest response, given the setting we were in. And here's what he said. He said, no. He said, I've never seen a life change. I've never seen someone's heart change. I've never seen someone's character change. He said, even when people join our movement and believe the truth, their lives are still the same. They're just as immoral, they're just as bad, they're just as corrupt, they're just as perverted, they're just, their life doesn't change at all. He says, I have never seen a human life or human heart change ever. He says, but we can change our thoughts. I've seen those change. He says, so therefore I conclude the only thing that we can change are our own thoughts, nothing else. And therefore God will hold us accountable for our own thoughts. And if that's the only thing we can change, and we don't change our thoughts to be in accordance with the truth, then our life has no value whatsoever. And you may in fact be doing the world a favor by killing those people who are spreading false ideas. It doesn't matter if you think they're Muslim, Christian, or whatever. None of those lives have value. Then, eventually, he was interested to know what, what we may have thought. And I remember asking and just saying, do you know the story of the prodigal son? And I was very shocked when he said no, because he was an incredibly railway person, this guy. And so I, I was almost certain he knew what it was. So I told him the story of the son you know, who rebels against the father and how the father welcomes him back. And after I finished speaking, he got very angry. And he said, this is a totally unrealistic view of the world. He says, no one can love that way. No one can act that way. No one can do anything like this. And it took him 20 minutes to give vent as to how, un, how romantically, hopelessly idealistic he felt it was. And after 20 minutes, I was simply able to say, when Jesus told this story, he was telling the story about God. This is how God loves us. And now all of a sudden, the guy sits back in his chair and tears come to his eyes. And I say, my experience has been, when we encounter this kind of love and grace from God, our hearts and lives can change. I said, I've actually even seen some hearts and lives change. And I told him some stories of um, lives and people had changed who were, uh, who were doing terrible things in Afghanistan, some of whom he knew. <coughs> it's very interesting. If we think our lives only have value when we live when we believe the right thing and do the right thing, we have a huge problem. The story of the prodigal son is amazing. The prodigal son is doing the wrong thing and believing the wrong thing, yet God still loves him. When the prodigal son repents, the father receives him back. If the prodigal son refused to ever acknowledge his wrong, he would have no peace with the father. But in the, if he encounters the father's grace, his heart is melted and changed. And that's what is at the heart of becoming a Christian. We are struggling in our culture because we've confused the categories of love and affirmation, so we don't know what it means to love our enemies anymore. Love and affirmation aren't the same thing. In a culture which confuses love and affirmation, if I don't affirm what you're doing, that means I don't love you. And then it's a shortcut to say, therefore I hate you. And, therefore, and in a culture which victimizes itself, all you care about are what people say. And you reduce everyone into ideas. And if they don't believe the right thing as you think they should believe it, then you think their life has no value whatsoever. And if you don't believe me, find two people in the midst of a very bitter, angry divorce and try and tell one of them that maybe not everything they're saying is true and see how long your friendship lasts. It's a very difficult thing to do. But here's the amazing thing. 
It's when we love someone, it's possible to disagree with them. When I disagree with my kids, it's not because I hate them. Maybe it's because I love them. When my five-year-old daughter came to me and asked if she could borrow the electric drill, and the answer was no, it wasn't because I hated her. Even though she desperately wanted to play dentist with my two-year-old son, the answer was still no. I'm not denying and saying no out of hatred. I'm saying it out of love. To love our enemies isn't to affirm them and to say, yes, I agree with what you're doing. It's to say, actually, I know I think this is wrong. And this is terrible, but to say it in a way where they know that actually it's coming from concern for them, not hatred of them. And this is now what we see God modeling before Jonah in such a beautifully way, and the book is unfinished. And I think that's maybe why this book is read out loud every year on the Day of Atonement. It's a bizarrely, it's a book of hope. It first of all says that it's impossible, it is possible for an entire nation to be turned around. That's number one. It's even possible for an entire nation to be turned around and God to use you even when your heart isn't perfect before him. Because Jonah's heart is far from perfect in this, as you can see. And that should give all of us in this room hope if you're a Christian. If you're sitting around waiting to become perfect before God can use you to do any of the things we heard this morning, you're going to be waiting an awfully long time. But thirdly, isn't it interesting? God isn't simply interested in using Jonah. God wants to rescue Jonah too. Jonah he's using as an instrument for his purpose amongst the Ninevites that they may turn to him and find peace with him, and they do. But God doesn't discard the prophet. He comes at the end and he offers him grace. Should I not be concerned? Should I not have acted this way, Jonah? And the book, in that sense, is unfinished. Now, I'm an optimist. I love everything to turn out well. So my hope is that after this final word from Jonah, in a sense, after the book stopped being written, Jonah's response before God was, God, I need you to. And I'm sorry for what I have done in all of this. That's what I hope his response was. I wonder what our response is. There's a huge need to break the cycle of a victim culture. For hundreds of years, longer than that, I would argue, I think for thousands of years, in all forms of basic counseling, we've understood one simple thing. If you have fallen victim to a terrible crime, you don't help the person by letting them stay in it. So let's take an extreme case of rape. Let's take someone who was raped. You can't help a rape victim by saying to them, oh, it doesn't matter, that's terrible, that's gonna make it worse. You don't help them by saying, well, just get over it, that's not gonna help them either, that's probably gonna make it worse as well. But there's something else that you are saying to them, which is, you mustn't allow what happened to you to define who you are or to direct your future. You can't allow that to happen. This event, this terrible, horrible injustice doesn't define you. You are more than this. And please don't allow this to direct the rest of your future. You know, some events which happen in our lives are so painful, we have to carry the pain with them for as long as we're alive. Even if we can't get rid of all of the pain, we hope to put such a life on a parallel track. Does that make sense? Put them on a parallel track and say, this doesn't define you. You are more than this. And don't allow this to rob you of your future as well. We're living, the strange thing about victimized cultures is that the more we buy into the mentality, the more we victimize each other. The more hurt we experience, the more anger we have, the more justificatory evidence we have to stoke up our anger, and the more happy we feel in being angry with other people. That's why the BBC ran a report last year, some of you may have seen it, 
in which a psychological study was done, which showed in the last 25 years, people now feel much happier about feeling angry. And the reason is, is in an honor culture and in a dignity culture, you feel ashamed of your anger. If you blow up, blow up at somebody, the next day you wake up and you go something like this, and you go, why did I do that? But in a victimized culture, when you wake up the next morning, you don't feel bad about your anger, you feel good about it. They deserved everything you did to them and a whole lot more. And that's why grace and forgiveness are an incredibly powerful way to break the victim circle. What about the requirement for justice? Just because we find a way to love those who are against us doesn't mean they should never face the legal consequences of their actions. That's not true either. So there is an important need to think through justice very carefully in our society and what we do to reverse all the injustice we see. But there's an even bigger need to somehow break the victim mentality that's taking over every single area of our global politics right now. So if you want one last thought before I throw this open to questions or comments, just take any contentious political issue from whatever country you're from and run it through this paradigm. The debates you hear, are they driven through a victim mentality or an honor-dignity one? It's taking over everywhere. It's making it impossible for us civilizedly to disagree anymore. It's making political life impossible. It's making legal life impossible. And I was speaking a little while ago with the heads of one of the largest banking groups in the world, and his opinion, it makes economic life impossible. And in the next 10 to 15 years, the entire world will go into a meltdown from which it will never recover. And on that happy note, I would like to thank you for coming here and being part of this.